you found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Right before we get started here, let's talk some more about our Patreon page. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you and you would like to see the podcast keep going and remain as ad-free as possible, please consider becoming a patron of our show. Go to patreon.com slash Island and sign up. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. Uh, plus, I've got some plans for some exclusive patron stuff uh, during the off season here, um, and I just love that chat, and I love putting that stuff together for you guys. Um, so anyway, come and join us, and let me give a uh, warm welcome and say a very big thank you to Diane, our newest patron this week. Diane, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to the Diggin' Oak Island family. Again, folks, go to patreon.com slash Island. Uh, and you can cancel anytime. It's only five bucks a month. So uh, give us uh, give us some support over there. But if you are not so inclined to get into the whole, you know, monthly thing, I get that. You can also give a donation, one-time donation to us via Venmo. Just go to at Dave McBride Music. That is my uh, music tip jar because I'm a musician by trade. Uh, so you can just do that right there. Thank you to everybody who's done that. And Gina, who um, gave us a donation last week, thank you so very, very, very much. Uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, really, really, I it, from the bottom of my heart, I can't thank all of you guys enough, patrons, people who donated. Uh, you really make this all worth doing for sure. Okay. Now, as I'm sure you figured out by now, there was no podcast last week. I was at Jazz Fest in New Orleans. Uh, longtime listeners know one of the other things I do besides the podcast and my job as a musician is I DJ Wednesday afternoons on a station called WDVR-FM. It's a community radio station in western New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania. I do a show called the Bourbon Street Bistro, broadcasts from Wednesday afternoons from 2 to 4 p.m., and it's all about the music of New Orleans. Uh, so you can imagine Jazz Fest is a big deal. <laughs> you can listen locally on 89.7 FM or online um, at WDVRFM.org. I think now you can actually go there and listen to it after the fact. I think they archive the shows for a couple of weeks. So uh, if you want to learn a little bit about the music of New Orleans or you like that kind of stuff, Come listen to the show. Uh, so anyway, sorry about the lack of podcast last week. Uh, just wasn't enough time in the week uh, to do it. So this week, we're actually going to cover both uh, episodes 23 and 24. And we're going to kind of do them all together. Uh, you'll see what I mean when we get to it. But before we do that, I also have to mention that next week is the season 10 finale. It's a regular one-hour episode, and I believe the following week we might get one of those um, Matty Blake shows where he goes to Traverse City, Michigan and talks to the guys. Uh, so I, I believe where we stand now, we have at least two more podcasts after this one focusing exclusively on the current season of The Curse of Oak Island. 
But as I like to do, <laughs> let's make that two into three. I want to know what you guys thought of the season. Now, you can hold these things back, and I'll mention them for the next couple of weeks. Uh, mention this for the next couple of weeks. You can hold this back. Wait till the season finale. Wait till the after show, after season recap show. Um, but I want your ideas and your thoughts, your opinions on what season 10 was all about. I want to dedicate an entire podcast to basically the viewer's opinion. Give you guys a platform to talk about season 10, You know what you thought about it, where you think the dig is now, what you would like to see in the future, anything like that. Um, you know, because I, I think we need that kind of platform, right? We need our, we need the listeners to be able to uh, express themselves on this kind of thing. And I know you guys listening to this show are serious, not only Curse of Oak Island fans, but Oak Island mystery sort of aficionados, right? So where are you in all this after season 10? I'd love to do a whole podcast just for that. So get your thoughts in. You can, if you're going to put them in the next couple of weeks, just label it, you know, for the end of season show. Um, but get your thoughts in, email them to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. So let's start today's podcast, as we usually do, with emails and messages from you, the listeners. And let's begin with an email entitled The Garden Shaft, and a very simple question from Rob, who asks, Dave, where is the water? Rob. Rob, that is one heck of a question. Um, what Rob is referring to is the simple fact that just about every searcher and every searcher shaft, every dug on Oak Island, eventually hit water, and a lot of it, and salt water, too, which I, and that usually became the single most important reason why any of, any of those shafts never produced any results, right? Whether as a result of the booby trap system or just a natural underground flooding, um, the water was often severe and impossible for many searchers to ever really control over the years. There was guys who tried pumping, tunneling sideways to avoid it, you name it, all to no avail, yet the garden shaft has no water in it at all as far as we can see. Now, perhaps it never did. Or perhaps Dumas is doing something to control it. I, I, it would be nice to know if they were. But there's no discussion about that. So we can't really kind of assume anything like that. Let me also add this. I think this is a good example of the kinds of things the editors can include in the show in place of things like recaps and check-ins and Templar B-roll footage, right? A little more information from the experts about what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, you know, getting a longer, more detailed discussion and not these chopped up, edited discussions about what is really going on uh, would go a long way to making the show, I think, to me, even more compelling. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I do. Anyway, great question, Rob. You know, I'll work on that for you. Here is another short email. This one is from Andy, who writes, over 10 plus seasons, can they bring just one person in who can refute something instead of stretching something to absurd proportions? Audio Andy. So what is yet another way to make the show even more compelling, right, Andy, is than it already is, is exactly what you're saying here. I think you got it. Why not bring people on with a different perspective? Someone who can dispute what a find might be or give theories that don't necessarily point to a treasure. Because I think over the years of finding these little things, ox shoes and stuff, and stuff that really doesn't get discussed any bit further beyond maybe it could be Templar is starting to pile up to the point where people are no longer putting any value into it. So if you're able to find things and then disprove them, that makes the ones that you can't, can't disprove even more compelling, right? Listen, we all know why they do this, right? Let's be honest. The idea to push the possibility of a treasure, 
uh, a curse, something mysterious. This is what the show's all about. This is why when they actually do disprove something, they either don't tell us or they just ignore whatever they found from, from that point on. Where they mention it so briefly, you might not even notice it. They've done that before for sure. But is this really necessary? I happen to think disproving something makes this stuff you can't disprove even more compelling, as I said. And being open and honest with the viewer also is, in my opinion, the best way to do these kinds of shows. But that's just one podcaster's thought, you know. Great stuff, Andy. So let's go now to our good friend Ginger who writes, so I was listening to a podcast that has nothing to do with Oak Island or ships from November 24, 20 that a buried Viking ship was found in Norway and it was only four and a half feet under the surface. I decided to Google that and found that there are many buried ships. This was pretty surprising to me because I'm on the camp of just letting it out to sea, set it on fire and paddle away in a different boat. There's no reason to bury a ship. I've never believed... There was a boat under the swamp. If you recall, I've written many times that I believe a tunnel entrance originates in the swamp. Finding parts of a ship in the swamp, to me, means absolutely nothing because stuff floats for miles and miles. Any of the parts of ships they found in the swamp could easily have floated there with storms and high waters over the many years of the island's existence. Now, with this new information, I have to consider the possibility of an actual ship in the swamp, even though I'm at 10% of belief or less. <laughs> I attached only one of the many links showing the buried boats that I've found. Uh, Ginger, fantastic find. Let me just say there are many problems with the idea of a ship buried in the swamp. So let's let's deal with it that way because it's it's um, you know this is a specific situation. The article you reference is about a ship being buried as part of the burial ritual for what I assume uh, you know were very important people from those civilizations and probably associated with sailing and traveling and that kind of stuff. Those Vikings are not trying to hide the ship. If they were. In my opinion, I think Vikings would even know that burying makes absolutely no sense. And I mean none, right? If for no other reason that it might be the worst and by far the most labor-intensive method one could possibly dream up to hide a ship. Taking it out to sea, as you said, putting a hole in it is way easier. So is just simply taking it out to sea and lighting it on fire. Why would anyone even think to hide a ship by hauling it onto land and somehow digging a humongous hole to bury it in, I mean, that just makes no sense to me. Uh, make no mistake, it would indeed have to be dragged, right? It would have to be dragged onto land in order to bury it in the swamp. And water levels were lower back then. So the notion the swamp was a channel between two separate islands is far-fetched, uh, you know, at best. You understand what I'm getting at here? So, in short, the theory that the ship was used to create the swamp is supported by very few, very little evidence at all. And is likely just another one of those fantastic inventions of the late Fred Nolan. Uh, thanks, Ginger. Always great to hear from you. I love your, your uh, input on stuff. Staying on the same subject, here is our friend Andy who writes, Dave, just following up on your podcast this week regarding validating Nolan's cross. We have often seen them date other features by finding wood underneath those features. That would seem to be a way to possibly validate Nolan's cross, or at least give it a time. If indeed the boulders were placed there and they could, have, could, could move the boulders and find wood underneath, it would tell us that the boulders were located into that position and possibly give us a date range. 
Not finding wood isn't as conclusive now uh, as I'm sorry, not finding wood isn't as conclusive and only tells us that either the wood degraded or they are just um, in a coincidental but natural position. Do we know if anyone has ever attempted to move or look below the boulders? Jeff. Jeff, I do. I, I think the team did, did just that, right? At one point a few seasons back. Didn't they try that with one of the stones that was right on top of Tom Nolan's property? You know, almost right after Fred's death, right? Right after Tom became part of all of this stuff. Wasn't that one thing they did? I just have a recollection of that. Am I remembering this correctly, folks? Um, obviously, uh, if I am, not much came of that. And that brings me sort of to the crux of your email. Let me put it like this. Once the Nolan Blankenship fuel cooled, one Tom Nolan, once Tom Nolan pretty much granted to the team and the show access to his father's records and lands, wouldn't the first thing that you would want to look the most closely at be Nolan's cross? I mean... Fred claimed to find a lot of stuff, right? But none more mysterious and certainly none more compelling than the cross, right? How many theories have revolved around the cross? How many bo books and television episodes have mentioned the cross and what it might mean? If you were the people heading the investigation of the mystery of Oak Island, wouldn't Nolan's cross be at or near the very top of your list to try to prove its authenticity and when it might have been made? For decades, people have claimed there is a face on one of the boulders, right? People have claimed the cross was representative of everything from a celestial guide to a treasure map itself or something of an arrow pointing at locations across the globe. These are all fascinating notions, but in order for any of them to make any sense whatsoever, you need to first prove that the cross is genuine and old. Yet no one has ever tried, and certainly no one's ever done that. Why not? Honestly, it makes no sense on any level. There are skeptics with evidence, mind you, who claim that the cross was fabricated, um, that someone, Fred Nolan, <laughs> moved the stones into place. And if you were Tom Nolan, and you've heard a lot of those, wouldn't you want to disprove that idea? Wouldn't you want to prove your father's one signature find, the thing that bears his family's name, was not a fake? Yet as of this point, no serious attempt has been made to do this. I got to admit, man, it makes no sense to me at all. Uh, and instead, we get deep looks into things like the great quadrilateral and some rock wall. It's puzzling, Jeff. It really is. It's great stuff, as always. Let's go now to Tom, who says, Hi, Dave. Uh, although I have been silent this year, I'm still enjoying the show and certainly enjoy your podcast. I pepper my wife with questions while watching. She's doing Facebook while I'm watching, of course. She told me these are Dave-worthy questions. So here they are. It strikes me as odd that the crew is still finding new features on the island every week or two. Why don't they just LIDAR the whole island so they can see the lay of the land? Uh, Tom, let me interrupt. I'm pretty sure they have. They've also scanned so much of it using a seismic scanner. We got this Muon technology that we may or may not see next week. Uh, and on and on. They know the lay of the land. I can assure you that. Uh, anyway, Tom continues. Also, I supply equipment to the construction industry. Do your viewers realize the amount of rock that has been used on all of the paved roads, walkways, ramps, and water wells? The amount of material is staggering for that era. And an average size excavator bucket is one cubic yard. One of Billy's, Billy's dump trucks is 15 to 17 cubic yards. Where did the original builders obtain their supplies and how did they get them onto the island? 
The geoscientists should look into this. I can't believe that all the rock, cobble, and gravel is native to the island. My wife doesn't like the show anymore, but she and I enjoy listening to your podcast together. All the best, Tom. And Tom, to your wife, uh, my wife is exactly the same, although she doesn't listen to the podcast, uh, but I appreciate that your wife does. So to the both of you, thank you very much. And let me just answer your question. That island is absolutely chock full of rocks. It's incredible, really. Just Google the boulderless beach and check out an image of that small area of waterline. It's littered with rocks of all sizes and shapes that kind of do look a lot alike the rocks in these paved areas. I have to tell you, Tom, if someone was looking to source rocks, they came to the right place. <laughs> and you know what? I think we have also had one or more geologists on the island um, over the years. And if there were indeed non-native rocks present in this feature, I, I think you can really bet your last buck that we would have mentioned that, that somebody would have mentioned that. We would have heard about that, right? There's no reason not to. It only, it only adds to the mystery. Uh, so I, my guess is at this point, I think it's more likely that they have looked into these things and they found they are native than it is that they haven't bothered to do that yet, if that makes sense. There are geologists and scientists there who have looked specifically at this, these features, you know. I hope that answers your questions. Um, there's no good reason to be silent, my friend. Keep those questions coming. Let's go now to an email from somebody named The Delicate Genius. It's an interesting name. I like that. Uh, I don't think myself a genius, but a bit delicate, I guess. She, she or he writes, love listening to your podcast while I work or run errands. Thanks for making it. Without going into detail about specific theories or speculation, the way I see it is it's either one of two possibilities. One, there's nothing down there. There is no treasure. Aside from local inhabitants and indigenous people, no one came to Oak Island and no one came and buried any secret treasure. People are inherently way too nosy and curious. And if something weird, strange, or out of the ordinary was going on, people would have noticed it. According to Wikipedia, yes, I know I'm referencing Wikipedia, but for general knowledge in this instance, I think it's okay. Um, Nova Scotia was settled almost 200 years before the money pit was discovered. And the Americas were discovered, in quotes, a hundred or so years before that. So I assume the surrounding area was populated enough, and Oak Island being way too close to the mainland, for people to not notice ships going back and forth to the island and a crew loading and unloading various things. Not to mention the work of building and digging wharves and tunnels and booby traps and such. The amount of time it would take to build and do all of that, people in the area would have taken note. There's a reason there is no recorded history of the goings-on over here. There was either nothing going on or what actually going on was something people thought was absolutely normal. Or possibility two, there is something down there. And if there is, it must have been put there long before there was enough people around to take an interest in all the common going on. And if something was brought to Oak Island before then, before the 1600s or even before the 1400s, then it must be something important. We know the Vikings came over long before Columbus. Are we fool enough to think that the knowledge never spread at all? It has been touched on in the show. There are some theories that, in my opinion, are just as good as saying that the aliens came to Oak Island and buried treasure. But the idea that at least some people knew of the new land well before 1492 is not a crazy theory. 
So Templars or not, if someone sailed across the Atlantic to bury something on Oak Island, I think it must have happened pre-1600 or possibly pre-1500. And the effort and knowledge of all the different skills and also having all the resources to do so and also the motivation to do so really does seem to lead in a particular direction. But even if not the Templars, and if it was someone else, if there is anything down there, it has to be as important as a Gerhardt-sized dump truck. So my guess is either nothing or something hugely impactful, nothing in between. Uh, thanks for the email. Let me ask, what is in between, right? I guess that's the first thing I wonder. Are you, is Shakespeare's manuscripts in between? Is that big enough? What about just one holy relic or two, right? I mean, to be fair, I think anything pulled out of there, even if it's just a few pirate coins from Captain Kidd, is hugely significant. So I think you're kind of talking about a zero-sum game here, right? I kind of agree and disagree, but in my mind, there is either nothing there or there is. Anything that is is most likely in the category of, quote-unquote, something hugely impactful. I mean... Think about it. No matter what it is, someone buried 100 feet deep on an island with the intent of it never being found. So how could it be something not hugely in fact impactful, right? That alone makes it, uh, you know, a, a worth pursuing in my mind, you know. And let me add this. What about the third option, that there was something hugely impactful down there and it has since been removed by someone before 1795? That's something to think about because then we're not chasing treasure we're chasing history. I guess that's kind of where we are right now, right? Thank you so, so much for your email. Let's go now to our friend Wes. He sent us a link to a very long documentary entitled Codfish Heroes. And he also writes, this video covers some of the po good possibilities of why all the workings are on Oak Island. Basque, Basque cod fishing in the 1300s. Love the podcast, Wes. Uh, Wes, totally a possibility. Now, I'm not sure of what the evidence is specifically for the Basque in the 14th century, but I do know that there were European fishermen all over North America and all over the North Atlantic coast in the early 1500s. And many of them set up what we would call sort of temporary, um, I don't know, what's the right word, encampments or something like that. Uh, so it is possible, right, for us to find things like evidence of inhabita or habitation of the island that has long been lost. Somebody comes in, there's very little around um, certainly few people around except for the Mi'kmaq. Uh, they set up a camp for a couple of months to dry their fish, and then they knock everything down and leave. I mean, that's that's what they did in places in Maine and things like that. I mean, um, you know, often they would set these things up, like I said, for only months of a time so they can dry cure or they can salt their catch, and then they'd go back to Europe, and that's really all they left behind. So you don't have a lot to really go on. Could that be what we're looking at here? Certainly, if we're talking about dates of the 1500s or 1600s, even the late 1400s, I think, yeah, that's that could be something we're talking about here. Again, these are the kinds of avenues that someone should be going down. Now, maybe this doesn't answer the money pit mystery, but if nothing else, it could serve to eliminate some of these other finds. All right, let's finish up with Mike who writes, hey, Dave, why do you need to go to all these places and talk to all these people when you have Alex Lagina? I know what you're going to say about Alex deciphering the words on the pillar in the church and the H.O. stone. You're going to say it was a stretch, and you are right. He's talking about the, the um, 
scene in episode 23 where Alex takes the HIC he sees, which we're going to talk about in a second, and turns it into an HO. Anyway, he continues. However, it was entertaining. It was a moment that made you say, that's cool. That w- that way it is represent- presented on his phone is simply a demonstration was well done. Is what he said right? Probably not, but I'll take it. Thanks, and hope you're doing well, Mike. Uh, Mike, I agree. It was entertaining for sure. Uh, a little confusing, and yes, a stretch. We're going to talk about that in the... Uh, in just a couple of minutes here, but listen, we've all discussed the HO stone a lot, so I'm not going to keep rehashing it over and over. The fact that they are laying into it so much here is a bit strange to me, especially since the show has always pushed the Templar angle. You would think that it would have been something that they have been talking about since the very start of the whole Templar idea, but I'm with you, Mike. I'll take it for sure. Great stuff. Uh, thank you for the email. Uh, you're going to hear some, my lawn is getting done, so if you're hearing that on your headphones, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to continue to uh, to uh, record here because I want to get this podcast out. So that's all for the emails. Let's take a break. Um, if you have any questions or comments you want to send to me to have discussed in a future podcast, send them to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. So let's take a break and come back with episode 23 and 24. All right, it is time now to discuss both season 10, episode 23, titled The Italian Job, and season 10, episode 24, entitled Down the Hatch. Like we usually do in these double podcasts, what I'm going to try to do my best to do here is to discuss both episodes as if they are one episode. So we're going to follow these areas of uh, of work throughout the course of both episodes. So let's start off with the money pit area. Episode 23 begins with Charles Barkhouse getting his chance to climb down into the garden shaft, which apparently is not as simple as just putting on a hard hat and climbing down a ladder. Uh, Dumas, the guys doing the work here, requires that anyone who wants to go down there go through a complete safety training. And it seems like something, you know, that's somewhat extensive for sure. Uh, Charles has completed the training, but ha- but Marty has yet to do so. So that's why you see Marty just there kind of watching, <laughs> not doing much more than that. Charles goes down the shaft, and when he looks up, you can imagine what the guys who built uh, this shaft and dug here must have felt like working that far underground. I mean, just even looking up on television is a strange sensation. What it must be for them down there is um, it's pretty crazy, for sure. Charles remarks, while looking at a piece of wood from, from uh, um, the last of the original shaft, let me put it that way, that's still in place. He remarks, why was there so much activity in this area that we know nothing about? And I just want to pause on that for a second because it is a great quote, especially for people only familiar with Oak Island through the television show, right? We are often led to believe that island researchers, island historians, people like Charles Barkhouse, right? Know all there is to know about the long history of the Oak Island treasure hunt, but they absolutely do not. Charles is admitting that very fact right here. Now, Charles, as a, a, a the person, Charles Barkhouse, and not the, the character on the show here, will admit that to you regularly. I'm talking about the way the show presents it to us, right? So keep in mind, folks, just because something is quote-unquote discovered on Oak Island does not mean that it isn't searcher-related, including tunnels, things out in Smith's Cove, 
It could very well be searcher related and we just don't have any information on it. We have a lot to learn about the work searchers have been doing over two centuries that they never documented for one reason or another. And it seems like we forget that sometimes. Charles does not, right? The Dumas guys tell the team they have reached the bottom of the shaft. They have finished excavating and rebuilding the garden shaft down to its original depth of about 82 feet. And from here, they are going to begin a drilling program to probe down to a depth of 95 feet or so, where they expect to find the tunnel the team was chasing earlier in the year. A tunnel hopefully leading to this thing they're now calling the blob or the baby blob or, you know, the spot where the scientists think the gold traces found in the water testing uh, are originating from. Episode 23 ends with Marty Lagina having completed his safety training, heading down into the garden shaft for the first time. Must have been quite the experience for a guy who spent so much time and money searching underground in Oak Island. As we turn to episode 24, we see Charles Barkhouse and Scott Barlow over at the garden shaft to observe the beginning of the, pro of the probe drilling program mentioned in episode 23. The Dumas guys are setting up a drill at the very bottom while the narrator mentions how short on time they are. Our uh, first, uh, first reminder that the season is soon ending. Uh, winter is coming, and not many people want to be digging or working outside on Oak Island in the winter. It's a cold place for sure. Scott Barlow remarks, uh, or he makes a remark here that the tunnel could be from the original depositors, and that makes me wonder how that could be. I have to admit, I'm having a difficult time understanding why someone would dig a 100-foot deep pit and then a 30 or more foot long tunnel in order to hide a treasure. Why would the depositors need a tunnel? So if we believe it all, right, then what happens? Uh, what, what happened was that the Templars, or whoever you think, right, sailed across an uncharted ocean with their most precious of, of items, right, landed on Oak Island with their gold or manuscripts or precious relics, whatever you think, right? Then they dug a 100-foot deep pit by hand, followed by an elaborate 400-plus-foot booby-trap flood system to the beach. And also now, a Lord knows how long tunnel leading to an offset chamber where this all was really kept. I mean, when you put it like that, it starts to seem less and less likely, right? A little more fantastic. Um, anyway, the next scene we see is a scene that actually starts off in the swamp, but then the guys are interrupted by a call from Scott Barlow saying that he thinks the Dumas crew has hit the top of a tunnel down at 91 feet. Uh, everyone gets excited and heads over to the garden shaft. Rick and Marty want to put a camera down to see what it might look like, if it's actually wood. So Dumas installs a PVC pipe to act as a casing for the camera so the mud doesn't collapse on top of it. They drop the camera down and all they see is mud and maybe perhaps something on the corner of the image that maybe just might possibly could be a little piece of wood. It's hard to say from the image, really. So the guys start hatching a plan to try and drill through this wood uh, and into the tunnel to see what more they can find. So later on in the show, Dumas drops this very nasty-looking drill down into the hole and begins drilling. But soon the drill starts struggling to get anywhere. So they pull the drill out of the ground and they find on the bit a small piece of wood that they think can at least be big enough for them to carbon date and at least gives them some assurance that there is wood they're going through and not, you know, a big rock or something along those lines, right? Then we want to get some idea of what this really is and how old it might be. This piece of wood is helpful. 
There's nothing more they can do in the show today, I say, but they decide to try um, again in the very near future with a bigger drill. So put it bluntly, <laughs> to put it bluntly here, there's only one episode left this season to see if all this investment into the garden shaft actually pays off. Now, before we take a break, let's just quickly head to the swamp. In episode 23, we see Craig Tester at the swamp along with Steve Guptill, Billy Gerhardt. Uh, he's on the digger and Gary Drayton doing some metal detecting. They're searching at a location where the magnetometer readings from earlier in the season indicated a possible large metallic anomaly. As they are digging, they hit a lot of water and also a bunch of rocks reminding them of the paved area. They decide to end their work for the evening and wait for Dr. Spooner to come have a look, which he does the next morning. And he arrives and says he thinks that it's what they're seeing here is not likely a natural glacial formation. As I understand him, he says he would expect to find similar rocks in more places than just here and in the paved area. Like I said, I think I'm understanding him correctly, but what he's doing is he's pointing out a bunch of places that they have dug in the general area that did not have these rocks. So I assume, therefore, the sort of localization uh, property of these finds, of these stones, indicates that this was not formed by a glacial movement in the Ice Age. I hope I'm making sense with this. It makes sense to me, but I'm not a geologist. I don't really have much to add here on any of this because I think we got to kind of see more of it. And that's really all for the swamp in episode 23. There's even less in episode 24. We just see this scene with Alex, Jack, Steve, Gary, and Billy continuing the ex excavation of the uh, the paved ramp feature that they've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. Billy is digging away. Gary is metal detecting. He finds an old, uh, old doorknob. That's pretty much it. Um, the only thing we can really mention from episode 24 in the swamp is that by the end of the episode, the guys seem to at least have some confidence that they are finding uh, the barriers, the boundaries of all of this ramp area, that they're defining it. And what I hope for is uh, that we can look forward to seeing, uh, to, to the chance to seeing all of these cobblestone paths and ramps cleaned up and exposed so that we can get a good aerial photo, a good, real good aerial image of how big this all is and where it might all go. Um, they're pretty close to that now. I'm not sure we're going to get that this season, but let's keep hope alive. Now it's time to head back to Italy. Much of episode 23 actually takes place in Italy, and I just love this kind of stuff, right? Once again, we see Rick and Alex Lagina, Peter Fernetti, Doug Kroll, and Corey Amal joined by researcher Emiliano Sacchetti. They are in Rome to meet with a numismatist, which is a big name for basically a coin collector or coin expert. His name is Umberto Maruzzi. Maruzzi specializes in ancient Greek and Roman era coins. The guys bring him two pieces they found on the island to look at a Roman half coin, and this, uh, this other rectangular coin kind of piece found on lot seven earlier in the season. Gary thought this might have been a coin, but there wasn't a really, nobody really had a good idea of what it was, if you remember what I mean. Uh, he looks at the half coin first, uh, Mr. Maruzzi, and he says, quote unquote, it could be a Roman coin for the fourth century. Could be is the words he used. A very interesting way to put that. So he had me doubting this a bit, right, when he said could be. But then he takes out an, an example of a similar coin, similar era, in a very good condition and uh, for us to compare. 
And I love this because I can certainly see the similarities here, right? Makes sense for me. The color, the shape, they all seem to kind of pretty much, you know, match up. At least good enough for me. So that makes a lot of sense. Now, the other piece, Maruzzi says, is not a coin. He says it looks very old, perhaps a thousand years old. And now the weird thing here is the narration makes a huge deal about this. A thousand years old. How old this thing is. But the thing is, it's not anywhere near as old as the other item, the half coin, right? So why make such a big deal about only this one's age when the other one is actually a lot older? It's a nitpick, I know, but I don't get the editing choice here. Regardless, Maruzzi thinks it might be a monetary weight, something used to make sure a coin weighs exactly what its value is supposed to be, right? Kind of the ancient counterfeiting police. Uh, Unfortunately, he does not have something for us to compare this to like he did with the coin, so it's a bit difficult for me to completely agree or disagree. Just got to take his word for it. And again, here in this scene, the editing is darn choppy, man. I mean, I don't really know what he was really saying, but it was just all over the place. Uh, The crux of the argument here with these two pieces is that this is a coin from the 4th century, but could have been used for hundreds of years after that. And this weight, this monetary weight thing, is from the Middle Ages. So essentially, both could be uh, in use in the Middle Ages. So who was trading ancient coins on Oak Island in the Middle Ages? Well, I mean, it would have to be the Templars, right? (laughs) I'm kidding. Later, the team heads to meet with Professor Andrea Di Robolant. He's at the American University in Rome. He tells the guys about a book published in the 1500s in Venice, which tells the tale of the life of two brothers, Nicola and Antona Zeno, who were Venetian sailors in the 1300s. The Zenos sailed from Venice to the North Atlantic looking for trading opportunities. They landed at the Faroe Islands, which is this small collection of islands between Scotland and Iceland. Um, There they met with a very popular person for uh, the Templar theorists around here, somebody Templar theorists would be very, very familiar with, a one Henry Sinclair. The two brothers did not return to Venice. Instead, they stayed on to work for Sinclair, who gave them ships and asked them to sail further north, assuming to be uh, for more trading possibilities. Now, in the 1500s, a relative of the Zeno brothers published their story and even a map, apparently created by the Zenos themselves, which suggested that they sailed to Iceland, Greenland, and even far beyond to what just might be Newfoundland and perhaps even Nova Scotia. But it was the next thing De Robillon showed that I really loved about this, about what he brought us here. It was another map. This one from the 17th century, and on it, it shows a territory that seems to be Atlantic Canada, and on that map is written that it was discovered by the Zeno brothers. So what I love about this is rather than showing me a map and me not knowing its provenance, right, now I see two things, a little confirmation, right? The only thing going through my head during all of this was, my God, Corey and Maul must have absolutely loved this. (laughs) Finally, the team heads to this beautiful town 65 miles north of Rome called Viterbo. It is there that they meet someone introduced to us as a Templar investigator and an author named Gianluco di Prospero. He tells them about the Templar involvement in Viterbo, which was a town during the Middle Ages where the Pope often found himself during the 12th and 13th centuries, uh, sometimes hiding out from unrest and violence in Rome. Remember, papal history back then is very complicated. De Robillon takes them to see the church, Santa Maria Nuovo, which was built in 1080. 
The guys are doing what they always do in places like this. They're looking around at old carvings, which they think are Templar carvings, and trying desperately to equate them with something found on Oak Island. The altar itself has a cross with four dots, which Robillant says was used to mark the location of a Templar relic. I really would have loved a specific example of that, you know, of a where this one, where this mark was and a relic was actually hidden. But be that as it may, we've heard this kind of stuff before from other experts. So I'm sure it's at least an accepted theory of what this mark means. Alex then, as we mentioned in the email section, uh, compares it to the HO stone. The implication being that perhaps the HO stone was a marker for hidden Templar relics on Oak Island. Alex also compares another simple, um, another symbol found, sorry, which had the letter H-I-C, which I think they said it is Latin for here. And what looked like a Masonic symbol uh, to the H-O stone, um, you know, uh, uh, how do I say this better? It was an H-I-C and a Masonic symbol, looked like the Masonic compass symbol, and Alex is comparing that to the H.O. Stone. The narration then tells us uh, an extremely abbreviated version of the H.O. Stone history, and Alex uses his phone then to show how the stone and this H.I.C. carving could essentially be the same thing. I mean, I think that's what he means. My question is, is he assuming then that part of the letters are missing from the H.O. Stone because it doesn't really seem to make sense to be both, right? It's either H-I-C, which means here, or it's the cross with four dots. But maybe it's neither, because as I've said before, the history of the H-O stone is iffy at best. So that's all for episode 23. The only scene really related to the Italy trip in episode 24 is this war room debriefing scene that we get. It was really just a few minutes long. Uh, it was just a recap of what we had seen the last two weeks. Alex even reprised his HIC is really HO theory again. And this time around, um, from looking at the HIC carving a little closer, you can see that his theory really isn't very solid because if you were to turn that I and the HIC into a cross, the horizontal lines would be going straight through the other letter. So they just don't really seem to be the same thing. Either way, that wraps up this fantastic trip to Italy. I absolutely loved it. I tell you guys all the time, even though I pick a lot of these things apart, I love these trips. This is the kind of stuff I'm in for. Uh, give me a trip to a Templar church in Europe over an ox shoe any day of the week. All right, let's finish up with Lot 5. The first scene at Lot 5 in episode 23 sees Jack Begley heading over to, his, to this rock pit feature to meet with Laird Niven. Since the last episode, Laird and his team have uncovered a circle of rocks, like a, like a, a patio of some sort around the rocks, right? Sounds, um, that's what, that's, I don't know how else to explain it, but it's the pit and then this patio of rocks and the circular motion around the outside of the pit. To me, this thing is starting to look less and less like the money pit, which was disappointing in a way. I really was hoping that this could tell us what those guys actually found in 1795. If it's not a treasure shaft, what was it? Uh, later, Marty Lagina comes to have a look and Laird tells him he is speculating, to use his word, that the pit was once filled with rocks. And then at some point, someone dug them out of the middle, making the pit and then used these rocks to create this circular patio thing. So later on, Dr. Spooner arrives with Craig Tester, and he compares it to a fortification, specifically castles in Scotland. And, you know, in this episode, we're talking about um, 
you know, Scotland a lot. We're talking about Henry Sinclair. Uh, so it's sort of the, um, <laughs> the country du jour for this episode. But he compares it to uh, like a parapet that would have a, a, a mount of a, would have a, mount, a cannon mounted on top of it. And honestly, I don't see it. Not yet. I mean, neither myself nor Dr. Spooner are experts on these these uh, <laughs> these structures or fortifications. So what difference is it really to make to make to us what we think? But I just don't see it. It looks more like a pit than a parapet. Right. Uh, uh, anyway, that's really all for episode five and lot twenty three. But in episode 24, we get quite a bit more, right? We start with Jack and Laird looking over at the stone pit again. They're doing a thorough excavation here, an archaeological excavation of the area, looking for artifacts now and clues to what it all might actually be. Jack finds a piece of pottery, and later Laird finds another piece of the same pottery much further down in the pit, which Laird identifies as um, saying that it, quote, went out of style by the 1750s interesting but i'm not at all sure that this is mysterious just yet certainly not the pottery right pottery lasts quite some time it's is it not possible for someone in the 1780s or 1790s to be using pottery that's that old you see what i mean i mean i have stuff around the house here that's older than that <laughs> later rick and marty uh, and alex um come to check in again and laird says quote i thought we would be wrapping up End quote. But apparently they found something else. Laird says the entire feature is much bigger than they originally thought. And Marty makes the terrific observation um, that it's starting to look like a foundation. Now, I have to say it certainly seems that way to me. Right. It makes a lot of sense here. Uh, that it that could be a foundation. Like I mentioned, Laird originally thought this outside circular feature, this patio thing, um, was perhaps from people digging these stones out of the pit. But now it seems there might be more to this than just a pit. And I think Marty is onto something. This could be a foundation for some small structure, maybe a uh, something agricultural, considering the island's history. Right now, for some reason, and I can't quite figure out what this reason is. Um, Jack Begley then says that he thinks it could be the hatch, or more specifically, the hole under the hatch from the Xena Halpern map. Now, I'm sorry, Jack, but um, putting aside all the normal quibbles I have with the map and the authenticity of it, I just don't see anything here that makes me think this is something one would label a hatch. What 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 is a hatch here? I, I, I don't see it. Now, towards the end of the show... We get a really interesting war room meeting with Dr. Chris McFarlane. He is a familiar person. We've seen him before. Uh, he's a professor of geochemistry at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. Uh, he has performed laser, laser ablation tests for the team on a metal object found on Oak Island to determine uh, what its chemical makeup is. This is what he's done for all things, right? Uh, lots of metal objects. He's seen a few of them over the years. He determines what their chemical makeup is, and that could tell him maybe the dating, maybe the origin, where it was mined, that kind of thing. So here he's looking at this small coin object that uh, they were calling a barter coin. This was found a couple of weeks back, right? It's this round thing with a hole in it with scalloped edges around the outside, right? So he's done his tests, and he says that his analysis tells him that the object is very, very close, if not identical, in its chemical makeup to the famous lead cross found back in 2017. 
Now, before we get too excited, Dr. McFarland does indicate that there may be more tests to be done, more data to collect on this piece. But if we just consider what he's saying here, what an incredible result, right? What an unbelievable turn of events. Another lead object made in France in the Middle Ages found underground in Oak Island. And the thing that's so fascinating about it is they're two very different objects, right? One is a religious relic and the other one seems to be some sort of monetary thing. A cross and a barter token. Man, how could this be? It's absolutely fascinating. Hopefully, this is the kind of stuff we're going to be hearing about next week on the season finale. All right, guys, that's it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can really help the show out by going to become a patron. Uh, if you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you want to help the podcast out in another way, then you can uh, do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your stuff, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much to everyone who's done it um, already. Thanks for taking the time to do that. Thanks for the kind words. And we could use some more. So if you haven't done that yet, go on to your uh, podcast platform. If you can leave a rating, do so. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggin'oakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud, just please make a note of that for me. So as we like to say, it's crown time. Until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.